Hello, and welcome to Runway Girl Network in Conversation, a deep dive into aviation and the passenger experience. I'm RGN Deputy Editor John Walton, and today I'm in conversation with aviation journalist and storyteller Howard Slutskin. We are both just back from the Airbus Innovation Days briefings in Toulouse. Full disclosure, Airbus brought us there and back and put us up for the event. And there's a lot of interesting news to discuss around the middle of the market. The A321 Neo XLR, YLR, ZLR and more. The A350 and everything from biomimicry to boundary layer ingestion. But first, thanks to our sponsor. In Conversation is brought to you by Bolteron, a Simona company, purveyor of high-performance thermoplastics for tomorrow's aircraft interiors. Specialising in an extensive range of film and sheet products tailored to the requirements of the aviation industry, Bolteron is dedicated to providing consistent, high-quality materials, advanced performance solutions, and meeting evolving trends in aircraft interior design. Learn more at boltaron.com. Now, Howard, welcome to the show. You're joining us from Hawaii, is that correct? Yes, it is. I'm actually on the north shore of the beautiful island of Kauai. About a 12-hour time difference from you, I believe? Yes, indeed. And I, I'm glad that we arranged the Hawaiian songbirds to, to Twitter in the background of this recording. As long as the, uh, the endemic uh, chickens don't start uh, crowing, uh, it, it'll be lovely. <laughs> endemic chickens, that sounds like a marvellous band name. I think it is. is. (laughs) So, Howard, will you describe the Innovation Days for those listeners who might not be familiar, please? Well, it was interesting because this was my very first Innovation Days, John. I had not been before, and and, uh, I made it uh, onto the radar screens, I guess, of uh, the folks at Airbus this year. And uh, they they graciously invited me. Uh, It was um, about 120, 130 international journalists uh, who descended on uh, the Toulouse airport at about the same time. And we stayed at a, a very nice hotel nearby, and Airbus uh, gave us uh, seminars or prefer- had seminars for us uh, for a day and a half pretty well, uh, as well as uh, making all of their senior executives available for conversations. Yeah, it was a, a really interesting uh, event this time around, largely given the amount of turnover uh, at the head of Airbus. I mean, you've got Guillaume Fauré up there now. You've got Christian Scherer in the uh, Sales Supremo job, the Chief Commercial Officer. Um, and it was great to, to put some names to faces, and I imagine for them also to, to get used in advance of the Paris Air Show coming up next month, uh, to get used to some of the journalists who cover this industry and the kind of questions that people are interested in asking. Um, and I found it really interesting the, the, the different questions people were asking at this show. Yeah, as, as as did I, but I kind of stepped back and had a look around the room and thought that we've got a wide range of uh, folks that cover aviation, everything from the editors or the writers in a, a newspaper who may have four or five different beats in transportation, right up to those of us who uh, are very focused on it, and that's the sector that we work in. Yeah, absolutely. But what I found really interesting was sort of chatting with other journalists around you know, far too much coffee. Um, talking to people like uh, Hu Tao of, of, of Xinhua News in China. Um, she's their, you know, Syrian aviation uh, correspondent. And, and just sort of understanding more about what the Chinese market is looking for in aviation, you know, the dynamics of that market, both as, as passengers as, and, uh, and as an industry. I, I, I found that, you know, not more fascinating uh, than the presentations, but it was just as interesting. I thought. I, I completely agree. I had some I had some fabulous conversations on the buses back and forth with folks, uh, gentlemen from India. Uh, you know, just 
it, it's interesting to see the different perspectives. We we are so immersed in it, we sometimes uh, perhaps don't take the time to step back and see uh, the importance and the uh, perspective that other people have on aviation. Yeah, absolutely. And also to, to, to really think, well, actually, hang on, why do we take this as red? Right? Why? Why is this the accepted wisdom within the industry that uh, yeah. that, that, that seats should be this size, or that uh, aircraft should aircraft should do that rather than this? You know, really, really interesting stuff. Uh, I thought that it was uh, quite interesting as as the leadoff session. Uh, there was a lot of love on the innovation side given to the newly, well, not that newly, but the the Airbus two hundred and twenty, the uh, uh, the Bombardier C series. Um, you know, what was fascinating to me was that they uh, kind of positioned the idea of buying uh, the program as an innovation. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is an innovative way to create an, an aircraft program, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I suppose. There are a couple of moments there where it didn't seem entirely politic to, to a Canadian audience. Well, as a Canadian aviation journalist and, and a proud Canadian and as well a Canadian taxpayer, I have to say that uh, that it, um, uh, Christian Scherer's comments about uh, that uh, the little risk that Airbus took to purchase this program um, kind of um, rang a little uh, little off for me. And uh, given the fact that the Canadian government invested so much in the program, uh, for him not to acknowledge that fact that that really not only is his partner Bombardier in part in part, but those of us that uh, have contributed to the program have been part of this. And, and I think that they perhaps could, could use a little bit of um, tidy up of their messaging. Yes, and of course that's always one of the helpful things about these Innovation Days coming as they do so closely in advance of the Paris Air Show, right? Um, all the Airbus media people are, are monitoring, the, monitoring the responses that we have and, um, and, and what we talk about in, in response to the days. And I think that, that there will certainly be a, a slightly different message to uh, to discuss at Le Bourget. <laughs> Perhaps. But the good news on, on the 220 was that somehow, I guess it must be invisible fuel or something, they, they've managed to squeeze another roughly 450 nautical miles of range out of both models of the C-Series. It's been fascinating to me coming from the, the passenger experience uh, shows, both at uh, Apex in Boston last year and then NX in Hamburg, where Airbus is really firmly on the A220 bandwagon. Um, you know, very quickly, you know, given the given the life of the program, and then very swiftly into uh, into saying, well, look, here's what we can do with it. Here's how it's here's how it's changing. Here's what's better about it now. Um, also, very interesting to see that the the official twelve thousandth Airbus uh, to be delivered was uh, decided to be an A two twenty. Yeah, and and I'm sure you quiz the Airbus comms folks as I did, and and because we 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 come into these things with a bit of a healthy dose of skepticism, um, that perhaps you know with all the various 320s and 350s and different marks coming out of Hamburg and Mobile and and uh, Toulouse, that that one might think it would have been one of those aircraft that would have been the 12,000. Well, well, uh, indeed, it was, it was interestingly managed. I would guess. Yes, yes, uh, interestingly managed to to indeed be a Delta Airlines A two twenty, and and that brings us rather neatly to the question about uh, about rates, which uh, we got into, and rates and production. A lot of the stuff that we were talking about ended up being around industrialization on day one. 
so uh, supply chain and so on. And yes. look, readers of Runway Girl Network will, of course, be familiar with the extensive issues around the cabin supply chain um, that in particular Airbus has been encountering, but also Boeing as well, um, in terms of the uh, seat quality, seat production rates, uh, lavatories and galleys and other monuments not up to spec, uh, and so on and so forth. And this is really interesting that, that Christian Sher was identifying that as pretty much the number two blocker for increasing the rate of the A320neos behind the proverbial engine problems. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. I, I, I chatted with um, Philippe Mern later, um, who's the uh, executive VP for programs and services. Um, and he says that they're, they're working on it, um, but you know, they, don't have that, they don't have that sorted yet. It's 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 interesting that because you would have thought that after the experience they had gone through with the A three fifty, that on the the neos and the lrs that that they would have that locked, but it seems that the the rather remarkable rate they're running at is still causing an impediment. Well, indeed, and it's not just that. I think it's the it's partly the nature of the suppliers, um, but also the fact that some of these you know, longer range A three twenty ones in particular. Uh, and obviously that that includes the LR, um, are getting towards uh, wide body levels of build complexity. And that is also creating issues for them. As a seat maven, though, John, what do you think about the idea of a three-class 321 LR? Well, I think we've already got three-class 321. It's four-class, actually, three and a half. Um, The American Airlines 321T. Um, That seems an entirely reasonable thing to have if if you're going to segment your, 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 your passengers that way. Um, if you have a, a long and thin route that's got a fair amount of premium traffic, yeah, I see no problem with that. It makes sense as long as uh, uh, they're. I, I'm. So, I suppose that they figured out that uh, uh, they can generate more revenue by uh, slicing up the cabin into the various segments and charging the various premium rates. Well, exactly, and I think premium economy is going to be a big part of that on the the short haul international. Uh, sorry, the narrow body international side of things. Uh, we always say that premium economy is the most uh, profitable uh, per square meter mm-hmm. uh, area of the cabin. Um, and as far as we've come, there's not been a lot of narrow body long haul premium economy out there. Um, you know, I'm thinking of there are there are a few. There's a sort of um, the uh, Air Transat sort of club class thing. You know, a, a sort of old school recliner. Um, there's, there's a few of that sort of thing, but nothing where it's that's not the top yeah. No, offering. I understand, and, I, and I'm, I mean? I'm also wondering um, how they're going to uh, deal with catering and in-flight service and something as simple as uh, enough lav uh, capacity and fresh water on board. A narrow body 321 LR or XLR flight for that matter uh, that could be seven, eight hours at uh, Mach 0.78 or whatever the speed might be. Yeah, absolutely. How do you move that beyond something like JetBlue's Mint, right? Which is essentially pretty much the longest uh, premium style narrow body that we see these days. Um, but of course, the the industry does have some uh, some experience in this. You know, I remember the the Happy days of open skies, that British Airways Project Lawrence subsidiary that ran 757s between Paris and uh, and New York. Um, and then that, you know, some some of the food there was truly terrible, which was not what you were expecting out of Paris. Um, I always remember the, the, the crepes of despair. Um, <laughs> I, I christened them. Um, also a good band name, John. Also a good band Yes, name. yes, yes, I think so. Uh, some sort of Finnish prog rock, uh, uh, <laughs> prog rock group. Um, 
But but no, it's, it's it is a really interesting question because if you're selling people premium products, they're going to expect white body premium level of service, Absolutely. unless you reset those expectations, of course. Yeah. Um, and this is going to be something that JetBlue is going to have to do with its international mint. Um, it's fortunate that it has you know uh, you know fairly strong operations already at, at New York and Boston for when it starts rolling those out. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting situation in terms of the the A three twenty one Neo XLR. Uh, and indeed, as 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 they were joking this week, the XLR, YLR, ZLR. Um, <laughs> yes, I'd like to buy a letter, please. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. Um, what's your What's your take on on this ad? I think one of the big questions that we're all asking ourselves at the moment is: Is Airbus going to make the move at Le Bourget to further expand the A three twenty one Neo section? Uh, of this family well one one looks at that and they've stuffed the third fuel tank into the um the lr uh the third fuselage full tank fuel tank Ooh, I, I part of me wonders where they have capacity for more fuel or what other enhancements they can do to the aircraft in order to eke out more range uh but but part of me is also sitting back and thinking well do i want to go that far in a narrow body and will the average passenger care will the average passenger plodding along through uh, across the north atlantic a mach 0.78 look out the window and see a dreamliner or an a350 or a 47 screen by at mach 0.86 uh and and realize that they're spending i don't know maybe another hour in the air uh it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens on the passenger experience side of things not to mention the operational side you know and and swinging back for a moment to the 220 with that bump in range it certainly opens up uh east coast us and canada to uh western europe uh routes or city pairs um to that aircraft which could be a benefit to add frequency or um create new uh new opportunities new marketing opportunities for the airlines Indeed, and of course, you know, outside just that, you you see the um, the A two twenty and of course the uh, Boeing Brazil commercial. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which are which are, are at time of recording still called the uh, the E two E jet, formerly uh, of Embraer. Um, you see a lot of the uh, more developing markets in Africa and Asia taking two here to their um, to to do their long and thin. Uh, highly profitable routes, and yes. I think you know an extra an extra hour in the sky here and an hour in the sky there, and you start really opening up some new options. Um, you know, you've got uh, absolutely you've got a lot of airlines there that are, that were operating. You know, maybe some some older seven three sevens or older A three twenties, and now have the opportunity to offer a, you know a modern passenger experience um, with modern rates of efficiency, and I think that's that's really interesting. Um, so, but yeah, th- look, the, the, the big question is, what does Airbus do at Le Bourget? Is exactly. Um, and, and, you know, the, I look at them just like some of the car manufacturers, a couple of the major premium European ones, like to, uh, to introduce vehicles to fit every single market segment, uh, every niche. And it's not unlike what Delta has done with their fleet uh, utilization and, and purchases. They seem to have a plane for every market, every yield factor, uh, every capacity, um, Airbus seems to be going down that same path, filling in all the little holes. They 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 appear to be marketing the 321 and the 330 as a uh, a perfect pair with uh, mixed fleet flying, so pilots can bounce back and forth between the two aircraft. Uh, there's certainly 
pushing hard and given the challenges that uh, our friends in Seattle are facing these days, uh, that uh, NMA may be uh, pushed back further. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those really interesting questions, isn't it? I mean, as, as I was writing for RGN, it's Boeing's move in the middle of the market right now. Um, Airbus has fairly comprehensively won the narrowbody side of things. Um, you know, you see you see that with the with the rate of orders for the three twenty one Neo versus the larger um, seven three seven Max aircraft, right? Um, it's just got it's it's just the aircraft that has that you know uh, capability in terms of performance um, on the. Uh, on the wide body end, so the, the the hard place of this metaphor that the Airbus was testing out, the rock on the hard place. Yes. Um, the hard place is the A330. And that is a hard place, actually, because the market hasn't gone wild for the A330neo. Really, I think, really I think in large part they've been waiting to see what Boeing's been doing. But when you when you stand back, I know that, that Boeing is focusing the NMA on, the, on lowering the cost through, through more efficient manufacturing processes and suppliers. But when you look at what must be a relatively low cost for Airbus to be able to market the 330neo at, uh, compared to an all-new aircraft, one would think that the longer that Boeing waits, the more interested airlines are going to be in the 330. Well, indeed. And, and look, and, and Christian Shearer at Airbus was really signaling that that's part of their plan, um, you know, calling it, quote-unquote, pricing, pricing flexibility. Yes, I love that. Lovely, yeah, lovely metaphor. And, and look, Boeing has obviously been doing that as well. Um, Boeing pulled Hawaiian Airlines' order right out from underneath the uh, the Neo at the last year's Farnborough Air Show. Um, I think Airbus might well be delighted to do something along those lines uh, this year, for example. Um, I would not be surprised if there are a couple of high-profile Max clients who... Uh, not to use you know military jargon, but you know defect to the Airbus side of the uh, side of this battle between these two companies. Um, you know I can see that happening. I can also see a couple of um, a couple of airlines decide well actually if we can get Neos at this price, um, especially if Airbus is able to do something interesting like downrating the engines uh, to to you know reduce the amount that it costs to operate. I can see that there might be some interesting movement there. Um, you know, if, if Airbus can sort of can move up in terms of either, you know, a, a physical frame stretch of the 321, a physical frame stretch plus extra legs, a physical frame stretch with extra, extra legs, you know, playing with the capacity and range uh, levers that it has available at, at this point, what is a fairly minimal cost. Um, and indeed something that they could then offer back to all of their existing uh, A320 family members, because let's not forget, there's an industrialization point to make here as well. In that, Airbus and Boeing love it when someone comes back and says, "Actually, I'd like to get the get the next size up." You know, may I may I please supersize my order for this uh, <laughs> for this A320 into an A321? They love it. It takes up the same amount of production line space, but it's more yes. money because those aircraft are more expensive. Um, so that's, that's, that's not bad news for them. And I think it's the same if Airbus you know, creates what we could call the A322, so a longer A321, or indeed an A321 with uh, extra legroom. Uh, <laughs> extra legroom. Extra range. <laughs> uh, sorry, I've got, clearly I've got seating on the brain. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's... But, and at the, top, at the top end of the, uh, the spectrum, there were a number of questions, uh, some very pointed questions from people about a potential A350-2000 
Airbus, a, an even greater stretch of the the uh, the top end of Airbus's range. Uh, and and although the answer was dodged, I understand that. Uh, that there was a wink uh, given here and there to a couple of journalists. Well, yes. I mean, it would surprise me very much if Airbus wasn't going to create a, a, a double-stretch A350. Um, but in the meantime, um, there seems to be a big push within Airbus um, to crystallise something that they were sort of talking about four or five years ago, which is uh, changing up the economy class cabin to move from what is the very comfortable line of rest that pretty much everybody apart from you know uh, French leisure carriers like uh, Air Caraibe and uh, French B um, have taken as, as tenebras they're you know they're really moving their their rhetoric on this they say they're going to do some sidewall sculpting um, they can do the usual you know razor thin armrests um, I'm I am entirely unconvinced that, that is good passenger experience um, well, look at look at what's happened with every single airline that's gone ten abreast on the triple seven. Uh, it's it's the same it's the same scenario basically, isn't it? Well, yeah, except worse because the A three fifty is even narrower. Um, you know, right. and I wrote a piece for RGN a while back talking about you know Boeing and Airbus in their wide bodies are offering airlines a different set of binary choices, right? Sort of uh, yeah. exceedingly comfortable or. Not entirely the worst thing I've ever sat in, or reasonably comfortable, and the absolute pits. You would only choose it if you don't like your passengers, sort of thing. Exactly. Um, and this well, is this is that latter option. This is a this is a tight configuration, and the A350 is really new. I'm not sure it has that much sidewall to sculpt out. Well, after so many years of Airbus crowing on in their marketing about the seat width and the seat width and the seat width in the A350 for them to suggest that that's not important anymore? Then I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily buy that one, I have to say. Um, but apparently there is a mock-up um, somewhere but that we were not shown uh, in advance of Le Bourget. Um, Interesting. It, I'm, I wouldn't be... I, oh, I would be very surprised if it came to Le Bourget, this mock-up. Um, that's not usually the kind of thing that they, that they include there. So, John, what did you think on day two? I was most impressed with uh, Airbus's CTO, Grazia Vintandini. Yes. Who uh, may, may be the hardest working person they've got there. She has a lot of things on her plate. Um, and She does indeed. And I think won the, the informal poll for most engaging presenter. Um, you know, that was... Without a doubt. That was a... Uh, that was a really interesting, um, almost a, a, a too much of a pelt through a whole bunch of different things. I'd have loved to stop and ask questions about, you know, um, boundary layer ingestion, uh, you know, a return to rear engine twin jets, um, you know. But that was that was fascinating to 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 you know even touch the touch the science there. Yeah, and and her and she she discussed rather in depth the idea of. Uh, the practical applications of electrically powered aircraft, including you know ground ops and how do you deal with recharging, and then touched on AI and automation in what may be part of the solution uh, for the shortage of pilots that we're facing to look at uh, single pilot operations with smart systems assisting. Yeah, I'm not sure this is potentially the time to be talking about single pilot operations, but you know I think there's definitely something to be said around increasing. Uh, levels of assistance increasing uh, sensibly and with you know uh, with reference to pilots perhaps um, increasing the amount of information that pilots are 
are presented with to do their decision making. That's certainly very interesting. Um, there was also this fabulous biomimicry uh, albatross one concept. Yes, where the, yes, that was the you know I guess the end quarter of the wing basically flaps up and down like the like the are those pinion feathers of a bird? I'm no ornithologist. Um, the the end bit of a bird's wings. Um, that was really fascinating, and that you know that helps it deal with 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 turbulence, with uh, differing you know air currents and all that kind of thing. That was really interesting. Um, I, I also thought that, um, and I hope I get his name right. The uh, Airbus's head of uh, urban air mobility, Eduardo Dominguez Puerta. Did I get that? right? I think so. I got that right. Um, he was very pragmatic, and I really appreciated that approach. Um, in looking at what's going on in the urban air mobility sector, given the 100-plus variants that uh, different um, innovators and inventors are coming up with and making the, the definite distinction between an invention and an innovation, uh, where an innovation actually becomes something that uh, is marketed. Um, and, and when he said, uh, you know, thinking about answering his own question about whether uh, we're going to see UAM aircraft uh, common by, oh, say, the 2030s, you know, 10 years out. He really said, I don't know. And he also acknowledged that there's going to be a heck of a uh, consolidation or fallout of those systems that work and those that don't. And Airbus has their city Airbus, which they've done a test hop with now. And really, I think we're all looking at this and saying the issue isn't so much the technology of the vehicle. It's going to be integrating it into the system some sort of air traffic control system and making it as safe as a uh, current air traveler getting into a car. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the Lilium uh, aircraft take wing uh, out of Munich. But I think it's really interesting to see Airbus as this, um, I guess this kind of industrialization partner. And I, I feel like we've talked about industrialization several times at this point. Um, but really look back and say, actually, Yep. Okay. We've done this project. You know whether it's the 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 city airbus or Vahana. Um, okay, we've done this project. We learned some things. Not going to make it. And they're prepared to say, okay, we learned. Yeah. Move it over to the side. Let's move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I, and I think that's that's very mature. I don't. It's a huge appetite at this point for people. You know, uh, jetting around in in in. Uh, in what are essentially drones at this point. Um, you know, until until people are. I think we need a couple more cycles of drone normalization um you know whether that's people getting their uh, delivery packages uh, arriving on their doorstep by drone or what um until we actually start you know getting a familiarization with um i guess more uh, a greater proximity of flying vehicles um around our indeed and and one of the flying vehicles that that i found fascinating that um, Airbus is is backing and its technology for technology's sake and for the creative impetus of it is the America's Cup Yacht that they're supporting uh, technology for. And we uh, we had a visit from the captain of that program of of, of the yacht, and they're and they're this amazing monohull that actually flies like a hydrofoil that Airbus is involved with in the design of it. It's it's just amazing, just as. Uh, the Perlin project, the pressurized glider that's uh, going to hopefully break 90,000 feet this year, is also an Airbus back project. Where these are things that, uh, whether one stands back and 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 decides for their their own 
uh, analysis, if it's something that is uh, exciting and and uh, fascinating and pushing the bounds of creativity, or if it's just technology for technology's sake and why are they doing it, whatever the case, it's still amazing that uh, uh, there is this work being done. Well, absolutely. And I think the America's Cup thing is partly a, uh, a fairly large uh, advertising to the uh, to to yacht fans uh, exercise, but also I mean it reminds us all that that aviation is a matter of fluid dynamics. Um, you know, air, air, air is a fluid, and we're in an ocean of air. As I'm looking out over the ocean, <laughs> we also are in an ocean of air. In, indeed, and and you know I think that it, it would be fascinating to me in a few years to to go back and ask Airbus the question of okay, what did you learn from from your involvement with the America's Cup that was then sort of came back to the Airbus family. You know, what's going to change in the aircraft in five, ten years down the road um, as a result of your involvement with, you know, what some might think of as a, as a frivolous, uh, you know, frivolous boat racing experience? Um, and I think that's, that's some fascinating questions to ask. I mean, you look at the material science in these boats alone, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating. Completely, completely, and it was nice that that they um, brought the captain in to to speak to that. As as I think we saw him uh, in January in Mobile, didn't we? Mm, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, and then the on the sort of from a, from a different perspective, you had things really coming to coming from theoretical into reality. So the Airbus Connected Experience, which is the Internet of Things within the cabin, uh, popped up after its visit to the Aircraft Interiors Expo in Hamburg. And I thought it was mm-hmm. very interesting to, to see that as what well. was probably the largest um, thing in the marketplace, which is the sort of bits of kit you can climb on and hold uh, section of the event. You know, just sort of displaying some of the interesting technologies around Airbus and so on. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating. That that's the kind of thing that they're that they're bringing forwards. You know, both the connected experience, which of course is them working initially with uh, Stelia, the sort of Airbus Group uh, seat maker, with Recaro, the uh, you know well, uh, largely an economy class specialist, um, and with Gate Group. Um, you know, and, and and it's a very interesting, uh, very interesting sort of. Uh, way to present this to non-passenger experience journalists. Um, mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, the, you know, the only caution, as both you and I know, is that sometimes these are technologies looking for an application, and whether they ultimately do end up enhancing the passenger experience still remains to be seen. And and as well, they have to be created in such a way to uh, make uh, the flight crews um, work far more efficient rather than adding another layer of uh, technological uh, babysitting mm, indeed and of course something that that no one in this space is really talking about there's a question of user privacy and data security mm-hmm. um, you know Absolutely. airlines are atrocious at this um you know it feels like a month doesn't go by until i get an email saying that some airline or other has compromised my personal information um or potentially done so, or they've set up, set up a Twitter account to tell me that they've done so, and also, you know, this is, does not give one a huge amount of reassurance that airlines are going to be on top of this. Um, and they do hold an awful lot of personal and potentially sensitive information about us, uh, whether that's uh, m- meal preferences that have religious bases, or uh, passport details, or, uh, you know, eventually in-flight entertainment. 
You know, if I'm travelling, for example, to a country that uh, takes a dim view of LGBT people and somehow they can figure out that I have watched five LGBT-related films on uh, airlines such and such, that's a, you know, that starts to be a real, uh, a real problem for people's real lives. Um, you know, if you have a CEO, for example, who's travelling and someone can, uh, can do a little bit of industrial espionage and figure out, well, the CEO didn't sleep very well and we know that because the, the sensors in the seat weren't activated in the right way and, oh, uh, we can tell they ordered uh, five drinks on that, uh, on that one flight. Oh, gosh, they probably arrived and they're a bit exhausted. So now we'll, uh, we'll take advantage of that. You know, that's... Yeah, not, un- not unlike the fly- flight tra- tracking software that's out there when... Um, those in the business world, the corporate world, track their competitors' movements in their uh, uh, corporate aircraft. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and no one really had good answers for me on that one. I spoke with um, actually I spoke with Airbus's Didier Nazar uh, just before the uh, the Innovation Days, and uh, and yeah, it it doesn't seem to me like there's a set of ISO standards or um, anything like the SAE standards that are being worked on for seats. Uh, nothing coming out of IATA. Um, I'm not aware of anything coming out of Apex. Are you, Howard? Uh, I, there is a focus on security overall, uh, and and I know that it's been a discussion point at Apex Tech quite regularly. Uh, passenger privacy, security of the information. Uh, it really is a, a bit of a Pandora's box, and as we're moving further and further into biometrics, those protections have to be there in one way or another uh, in order to protect people's personal information. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit too much of, well, well, it's it's the airlines to deal with. And actually, I'm not entirely sure if I bite that. I think that those who are designing no, no, these I systems think it's, have I think it's well. everybody up and down in the system, to be honest with you, right from the, the second you check in for those that might use some sort of uh, biometric recognition to pay for their, their airfare on their phone. Uh, through to checking in and or and using iris scanners or who knows what other kind face recognition, uh, facial uh, uh, recognition. Uh, th- there are so many technologies that are coming on board to streamline the process, which is, as as we both uh, agree, I'm sure would agree, it makes it a whole lot easier to be able to walk fairly uh, seamlessly and uh, without a frictionless. That's the word I was looking for. A frictionless experience where you come into the airport and you basically walk right through to your gate. Ultimately, that could happen, but at what cost? Right, exactly. And I think that, yeah, I think public opinion is gradually seeing what this sort of uh, automation and indeed technology can do. Uh, partly that's because, you know, you have facial recognition built into every new iPhone now. Partly it's because you have the rise of um, uh, electronic uh, biometric immigration gates. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, the, the, the French have got those in a number of airports now under the PARAF system. Uh, the UK has got that, although I was a, uh, an early guinea pig of the UK's IRIS system years and years ago, which was uh, frankly just as good as what they've got now, except it wasn't rolled out quite as much. Um, and actually, I was, you know, on a... I, my trip to Innovation Days was via London and uh, Helsinki and London again. And it was all, you know, a, a bit of a, um, a, a bit of a marathon. But I was so interested in the number of times, like, oh, thank God there's, there's automated gates and I don't have to wait to see a person. Um, mm-hmm. And now the parts of the passenger experience where I do have to wait and see a person, like security, uh, like bag drop. And I think, oh, God, this is a bit of a faff, isn't it? You know, especially <laughs> especially automated backdrop, right? You know, and I, uh, 
for regular listeners will know I'm, bi- I'm a big fan of the way that Japan designs passenger experience, whether it's train or plane or bus or whatever. Um, but the, the Japanese were really early on with the, with the automated bag drop. Um, and there are times when I would pay cash money to be able to not wait in that queue for bag drop and just roll my bag up, put it in the little thing and, and tag it myself and off I go. Um, you know, that, those are some times that you think, actually, I could easily save this five, ten minute wait in a queue and just do this myself. Um, yes, yes. Just like, just like self-serve gas. Yep, indeed. So, Howard, to, to round us out, what was the most interesting innovation that you saw at the Airbus Innovation Days? I quite liked the work that one of Airbus's, uh, I believe he's an engineer, did repurposing uh, some of the aircraft components into quite remarkable furniture and other items. There were a number of items on display there, and I believe they also have a website, and maybe, uh, maybe John, you can dig that up later. Uh, I know I picked up a catalog that's not with me here in Hawaii, but, <laughs> but uh, sitting on my desk at home. And they, they showed some beautiful tables and things like using a, a window frame off of a, an A320 that was being parted out as a mirror uh, frame. And, and other items like that, it just really caught my eye. Now, from the passenger experience side, I mean, there's any number of things on the connectivity area that, that may prove to be uh, of, of some use, like uh, smart galleys and smart galley carts to follow uh, um, inventory control in a in a more efficient way. At least that's what's what's being said. Although uh, one one might stand back and wonder whether uh, an efficient uh, barcode system will do the same thing without having to have a smart cart uh, eating up some sort of uh, some level of bandwidth. Uh, the other thing that that I thought was a a fun thing to to see was the um, LED lights indicating where there is room in the overhead compartment, given the fact that everybody brings their entire uh, um, their entire closets on board these days uh it's always nice to know where there is space but it might also end up being frustrating uh so green for empty orange for a little bit of space and red don't open this bag. <laughs> items may have shifted during flight yes um yeah yeah no absolutely i i think that you know that's something that we've seen at the passenger experience shows a bit um, by this point, you know, three or four, uh, three or four shows at this point, but it's again, it's really interesting to see this is starting to hit the, you know, the mainstream of the, you know, so and so city times and the so and so national post level of mm-hmm. of aviation communications, and I think that's and and I guess wrapping it up, John, that's exactly why Airbus invited 120 or 130 uh, of uh, of aviation writers from around the world to come to this because they they know that it isn't just those of us who are deeply focused on the sector but those who are writing generally for general audiences that can get their messaging out yeah absolutely so that's it for today's conversation. We certainly hope you enjoyed it, listeners, and we are always keen to find out what you think, including about our new transcriptions available at runwaygirlnetwork.com. Please do feel free to email me and, and let me know what you think at john at runwaygirlnetwork.com with any suggestions. Now, thank you to our guest, Howard Slutskin. Howard, how can folks continue the conversation with you online? Uh, best way is uh, send me a DM on Twitter, I'm at Howard Slutskin, or you can visit my website, which is wingborn.com. That's W-I-N-G-B-O-R-N. And there's a contact me uh, page on that as well, as well as my story archive of 
of uh, all of my various pieces that I've written for a whole bunch of different outlets over the years. And John, it's been a pleasure. Lots of fun. Even though we're 12, mi- 12 hours apart, it feels like you're just sitting next door. Uh, 12 hours and several flights of an A321XLR. I feel. Definitely. <laughs> As ever, listeners, you can find me on Twitter at ThatJohn and everything from RGN on Twitter at RunwayGirl and, of course, at RunwayGirlNetwork.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. <laughs>